All right, we'll try it again. How is everyone this evening? Good. There you go. We're alive. Thank you. Um, as, uh, as our brother said, my, my name is Garrett Kell, and uh, it's, it's a joy to be here with you. I was in Dubai about three and a half years ago or so, and I had the, the opportunity to, to spend some time with, with some of you, and look forward to spending more time uh, at the breaks and over these, these couple days. So uh, thank you for marking out some time to come and to, to learn uh, more about God's Word, and trust that His Spirit will lead us as we, uh, as we seek to do this together. Um, uh, let's see here, just a little bit about me. So I'm pastor in Washington, D.C., have been pastor of Delray Baptist Church for three years. Uh, Brian Fajito, who's right there, he's one of our elders. So um, glad to have you with us, Brian. Brian keeps me out of trouble, so praise God for him. Uh, I have one wife and four children. So Carrie, my wife, is uh, she's back home right now, not super feeling super well, so you can pray for her. And then we have four little ones, Eden, seven, Haddon, who's five, Phoebe, who's three and crazy, uh, and then Graham, who's 22 months. And uh, so that's, uh, that's our crew right now. So God bless my wife while I'm over here in the desert with y'all. Um, how about, uh, thank you for praying, brother. Let's pray once more, ask the Lord's uh, grace on our time, and then we're going to dive right into the book of Hebrews. Father, we know that for all of eternity past, that you delighted in sharing glory with the Son. Uh, and we know that, uh, that our Lord Jesus, uh, in that high priestly prayer, he spoke about not just longing for us to be able to see him sharing in that glory for all of eternity. And we pray that in our time together tonight, through the book of Hebrews, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to behold the Son, and that we would consider the Son, and that we would love the Son, and that you would warm our hearts and warn our flesh, and that, God, you would use this word to help us uh, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourself, and that you would give us grace to help us to persevere in faith. Father, use your word to apply to each of our lives in whatever way would be appropriate. We trust you to do that work, which only you can do. So magnify yourself in this time together. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, book of Hebrews, chapter 1. So the way this is going to go, we're going to go through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, mostly, okay? Um, I'm preaching at Redeemer on Sunday, and I'm going to be doing Hebrews chapter 11. So, when I say Sunday, y'all have the gift of interpretation. I see that. That's good. You know what I'm saying. All right, so Friday. Uh, yes, I'll be there at the right day. Don't you worry, Lord willing. Um, but I'm going to be doing Hebrews 11 uh, on at the Friday main gathering. And, um, yeah, so we're not going to be doing that. That'll be tomorrow anyway. But we're going to just kind of walk through this book and kind of do it quickly so I'm going to do my best to speak in a way that you guys can follow and understand. But the aim of this is to help you to understand the book of Hebrews so that the rest of your lives you can read it and understand it better and help other people to do the same, which is the mark of a disciple, that we want to help other people to grow in their walks with Jesus uh, and help people who don't know Jesus uh, to come to know him. Um, just to kind of set the book of Hebrews in the context of the whole Bible, so the Bible starts out in a garden, the Garden of Eden, where God and man are together in perfect unity. There is love, there is freedom, there is joy. 
there is nothing but, but life. That's the way it was in the Garden of Eden. All was well. Adam and Eve sinned against their God, and the fall happened. And ever since then, the world has been filled with wars and cancer and funerals and weeping and mourning in the midst of still being able to see good things that God has given. But our world is cursed. It's all around us and it's within us. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God gave a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a man, a singular man, born of a woman who would come and he would crush the serpent's head and in the process he would be wounded. That's in Genesis 3.15. It's the first gospel, the first promise of somebody's going to come to fix this thing. The rest of the Old Testament, if you want to sum it up in one word, is the word anticipation. Somebody's coming. The serpent crusher is coming. And he is going to come and he is going to fix this world. Fast forward to the end of the Bible, we end up in the book of Revelation, final scene in another garden. A new heaven and a new earth where there's a tree of life and a river of water and people see God face to face. The Bible is a story about how we get from the first garden to the second garden, one which we will never be cast out of. And the way that that happens is through the promised one, Jesus. So the good news, otherwise known as the the gospel, is that God sent his son, Jesus, the one that was promised through all of the pictures, prophecies, and promises of the Old Testament to come into our world, the God-man. Jesus was fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life, unlike one that anybody in this room or anybody who has ever lived or will ever live, lived a perfect life. And then willingly and joyfully went to the cross and there he died and, and took the wrath of God upon himself that we deserved for our sin ever since the first sin of our father Adam. Jesus took that wrath on the cross and then he went into the grave. He literally died. He literally shed blood. He literally went into the grave for three days. After those three days, he was raised from the dead. Amen? Praise be to God. That's good news. He came up and now the gospel has gone out. The promise that if anyone will turn from their sin and trust in him, if they will repent and believe, they will be forgiven of all of their transgressions and reconciled with God. They will have God's Holy Spirit uh, and they will be sealed until the day of redemption when they will be brought into uh, that new heaven and new earth when Christ returns. Okay? So that's the story of the Bible. That's what's happening in the Bible. When someone believes in Christ, what God does is he, he awakens them through his Holy Spirit and they believe upon Jesus. When someone believes upon Jesus, they are brought into what's called the church, the universal church, which is all believers for all time. The universal church shows up in local churches, which are a geographical assembly of believers. So there's, I think, 12 or so different churches who are represented here tonight. These are geographically centered assemblies or gatherings of people who most likely, many of them, hopefully all of them, but um, are, are part of the universal church, okay? They are a community that rally together um, to, to worship Jesus and to help each other to do that and to help people who don't know Jesus to follow him. Those local churches... That began since the, since the beginning in the book of Acts, first one there in Jerusalem. As the gospel went out in the book of Acts, the gospel went out to Rome. And a particular congregation started of people who were formerly Jews who heard the gospel that the Messiah had come 
And they believed upon Jesus and they began meeting. These Hebrews were meeting together, celebrating that the Messiah had come. And then, and then persecution began to come. And all of their former Jewish friends began to say, whoa, 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 this, this Jesus guy that you guys are calling the Messiah and you're calling the Savior, he can't save you. He's not qualified to save you. You need to come back to Judaism. You need to come back to the law, back to the prophets, back to the sacrificial system. You need to come back. And the pastor writes the epistle of the Hebrews to this congregation to tell them, there's no going back. There's, there's no going back. Because Christ is it. There is no plan B. Jesus is the Savior and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. So that's what the book of Hebrews, that's the setting that the book of Hebrews finds itself in. Okay? So you have, a, you have a handout there. If you look down to audience, I'm not going to read all this. You can read and study later. But if you look at audience... It says, appears to be a community of predominantly professing Jewish and Gentile proselyte believers. So a proselyte is somebody who used to worship idols, and they come to worship the God of the Jews. Um, they get assembled in with them. Well, they believed in Christ. These believers suffered strong social persecution and the temptation to forsake Christ and return to Judaism. So the persecution that the congregation who received this letter at first, that we're reading tonight, some 2,000 years later, almost 2,000 years later, um, the, the kind of persecution they were facing, it'll say later in Hebrews that they have not yet started shedding blood yet, but this is the kind of persecution that you feel all around you. You feel it here, okay? It's, it's the ostracism. It's the outcast. You don't get invited to the parties. Friends turn their back on you. Family members turn their back on you. You're dead to me. That kind of thing where you don't get jobs because you're a follower of Jesus. That kind of stuff. Uh, that, that many of you feel here and that we certainly are, are increasingly feeling in America, um, that is what was happening to this congregation. And that pressure, which behind it is Satan himself, attempting to get the people to renounce Christ and to just go back. Just, just go back. And that's always been the temptation for every believer who's ever come to know Christ is to go back. Go back to Judaism. For me to go back to partying. For some of you to go back to Hinduism, some of you go back to Islam, some of you go back to your atheism, whatever it may be, there's always the temptation to go back. That's the pull of the world, is to forsake and forget Jesus. Because it's just easier if we do that. And there's temporal pleasures that make it worth it. Well, what this author wants to do is he wants to say, no. He says, no, no, no. Don't, don't go back. Don't go back because Jesus is better. And that's what he does in this book. He lays out that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than the prophets, chapter 1. He's greater than the angels, chapter 1. He's greater than Moses, chapter 3. He's greater than Aaron, the high priest, in chapter 4 and 5. He's greater, he is of a, a greater order of priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, chapter 7. He uh, mediates a greater covenant, chapter 8. Uh, he offers a greater sacrifice in a greater tabernacle, chapter 9 and 10. Therefore, be a people of faith, chapter 11, who look to Jesus and follow after Him. And as you do that, and you're responding in faith, rest and trust God when He disciplines you and purifies you in the midst of that. 
And do that in the context of a local church where you're submitting to leaders as they will give an account for your soul. Do this as a church is what he's saying in the book of Hebrews. Okay? That is, that is basically what he does through the book. Is he exalts Jesus and he shows you Jesus is better. And then at the same time, he's going to come with warnings. Five warnings that he works through here to show us there's no plan B. And, and what he's doing is he's, he's encouraging the believers to persevere in faith. Keep pressing on. Don't go back. There's nothing back there but judgment. Don't go back. Press on in faith. Okay? Perseverance in faith proves that your profession is true. Perseverance in faith proves that your profession is true. And this is one of the, the things that's just continually drummed throughout this book is that keep believing, keep believing, keep believing. So the author of Hebrews knows, and really the New Testament, knows very little of I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, checked a box, cried a lot on a Sunday, Friday morning, um, whatever religious experience, and that being good enough. The Bible just knows nothing of that being where your confidence comes from. Confidence that you are God's comes from an abiding faith. He who has the Son has life. And the author wants to encourage them um, to cling to Christ. We'll, we'll talk more about some of the warnings as we, as we get into it. But that's, that's the setting of the book of Hebrews. Exalting Jesus, warning against turning back. All for the encouragement of perseverance and faith. Okay? Anybody have any initial questions? Anything that was unclear? Something that would be really helpful that you think I missed? Great. That's, that means you're either not paying attention or that was just so clear you couldn't miss it. Okay. So what we're going to do now is we're going to get into chapter 1. All right? Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to see in verses 1 through 3 that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. By His Son. Okay? So in the Old Testament, it says here, many times and in many ways. You remember the ways God did it? Burning bush, spoke through a donkey, sky, visions, dreams, on the mountain. God, lots of different ways, spoke to his people. Primarily, he did it through prophets. And what the prophets were doing is basically they were laying little breadcrumbs for the people of God to follow by faith all the way up until the bread of life would come and be born in Bethlehem. That's basically what the prophets were doing all the way along there. And he says that... That's how God used to speak to our people, that he did it through, he did it through the prophets. But in these last days, how does it say he has spoken to us? By his son, not merely a human messenger like a prophet or a heavenly messenger like an angel. This one is greater. He is both the heavenly and the earthly messenger. He is the God man. He is the Son. In these last days, the way that we know who God is and what He wants is through the Son, who fulfills everything that's been coming so far in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. 
Now, notice here what else it says about the Son. By His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of His power. So Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is also the sustainer of all things. Think about that for just one minute. That while Jesus was sleeping in the boat that was being tossed to and fro, he was holding the universe together by the word of his power. All right? He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the heir of all things. He's the one that the Father gives everything to. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Son of God in the flesh. That's how God has spoken to us now. Through the Son. Notice also here it says that He is the radiance of what? Of His glory. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory of the Son, the only begotten of the Father. He's also the exact representation of what? Of His nature. That's why John 14.9 Jesus can say, Whoever has seen Me has seen Jesus is not the Father. We're not modalists. Okay? Jesus is not the Father. But He's the same nature as the Father. He's the exact imprint of His nature. Everything that the Father possesses in the sense of divine character, Jesus is that. Because He's God. He's God in the flesh. In the last days, we don't look for a messenger, merely a prophet, but one who is the Son of God. That's how he's spoken to us in the last days. So the prophets spoke a message. Jesus is the message. Prophets gave a written word. Jesus is the living word. Jesus is greater than the prophets. So when they are getting this temptation to go back to listen to the prophets, go back to what the prophets said, well, you can't go back because all the prophets were talking about who? They were all talking about Jesus, and Jesus has come. So there's no plan B. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the prophets ever spoke about. You can see this in 1 Peter. You see it everywhere that the prophets, they longed to know who is this one the Spirit is talking about through me. They wanted to know who he was. Well, we know who he is. He's the Son, and he has come. Praise be to God. So how do we know who God is and what he wants from us? You look to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through, through Him. So Jesus is he's greater than, than the prophets. The author then goes on, and he's going to now, in this second little section here, we're going to learn that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, by the way, the way we're going to do this is I'm just going to truck on through for a little while, and then I'm going to get to an end of a section, and I'll be like, okay, who has questions? So if you have a question that's just like, you're going to die if you don't get the answer, put your hand up. If you can hold on to it, write it down. When we get to the end of a section, I'll say who has questions, and we'll, we'll take a little bit of time there to try and digest together. Okay? Um, and if you don't get your question answered, which you may not, then this is what God gives a church for. So talk to one another and learn and study for the rest of your life. Okay? Here we go. Jesus is greater than the prophets, and 1 verse 3, he's also going to be greater than the angels. Look again here. In the middle of verse 3, After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels 
as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now before we move in just a little further, notice here, what does it say that Jesus did? He made purification for sins. This, if you've read your Old Testament, this is a theme that you would be familiar with. Sin makes us unclean against God. That God is holy and perfect and we are not. And because of our sins, we need to be cleansed. So in the Old Testament, God makes provision. He gives the law to show us our sin. And then He gives a sacrificial system because He knows we're going to break the laws to cleanse us from our sin. But as we're going to see through the book of Hebrews, they were just a mere temporary cleansing. It's a more a ritualistic cleansing. It's a, it's a kind of a, a faith put on layaway until Jesus comes and fulfills it all kind of thing. But it says here that Jesus made purification for sins. He went to the cross and He shed His blood. The wages of sin is death. Blood must be shed. And it's either going to be ours in judgment or there'll be a perfect one who had no sin who would be judged on our behalf. And Jesus, that's what He did. He shed His blood to make purification for His people. And then He rose from the dead and He ascended. And it says, what else did He do right after that? He sat down. Now, this is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. So you might want to underline that. You're going to see this show up um, in chapter 8, verse 1, 10, 12, and 12, 2. He sat down. All right, Bible trivia question here. What piece of furniture is not in the tabernacle or temple? Ain't no lazy boy in the tabernacle, okay? That's a chair, okay? That's a lean-back chair. You know why there's no chair in the tabernacle? Because the priest's work is never done. Morning and night, all day long, there's sacrifices that need to be made again and again and again and again. And Hebrews are going to tell you it's just a reminder of sin. But Jesus comes, and on the cross, when He sheds His blood, He says, it is finished. So He goes, and He sits down. It's done. The work's done. And what do we need to do? Rest. You trust. That's what He wants. Don't go back to the system, because the system's been fulfilled. It was, it was a bridge to get you to this place. It was, a, it was, it was merely uh, air, uh, arrows pointing you home okay now you notice here that he says he sat down at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high that's the father the right hand the place of authority having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs what did what distinguishes jesus from the angels is his his name he has a name that is above every name. And the name is Son. Jesus is the Son. And what the author is going to do here is he's going to take seven Old Testament quotes and he's just going to line them up and he's going to show you how Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is the Son. They are mere servants. And he's going to show you several things about Jesus that are true of him, that are not true of angels. And the reason he's doing this is he wants you to see he's greater than the prophets and he's greater than the angels. And we'll talk about why we need to know that he's greater than the angels in just a moment. But let's look at these, these Old Testament uh, proofs that he gives, okay? Verse 5, 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2. The author here says, When did God ever say to an angel, You're my son? Psalm 2 here is an enthronement psalm. It's used for when God would enthrone a king in Israel. He would say, You're my son today. Well, Jesus is the final king, the king of kings. And you remember the transfiguration, what the father said? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is the son of God. He never said that to an angel. Or again, and now he's going to quote 2 Samuel 7.14, which is the Davidic covenant, the promise God made to David that there would always be a king who would sit on his throne. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God never said that to an angel. He only said that in the ultimate sense to Jesus. All right? Now, look here at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, when he brings the firstborn into the world, how many of you have ever met with a Jehovah's Witness before? Do you know what Jehovah's Witnesses? Okay. So Jehovah's Witnesses would look and they would say here, firstborn, well, Jesus is the firstborn of God's creation, meaning he, he had a beginning. That's not true. Okay? That's not what he means here. He means the rights of the firstborn. The rights of the firstborn receive the inheritance. He's the heir. Jesus is the heir of all things. So when the father brings the firstborn, Jesus, into the world, he says, angels, how should you respond to him? Worship him. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but God is not keen on anybody worshiping anything but him. God says in Isaiah 42, I will not give my glory to another. But here, the Father commands the heavenly host to worship who? Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. And what's really interesting, it's a quote from Psalm 97, which Psalm 97 is an exhortation to Israel telling them to not be idol worshipers, but to worship the one true God. So how do you not be an idol worshiper and worship the one true God? By worshiping Jesus. That's what he says here. So Jesus he's not an angel and he's not just a prophet he's the son of God who is to be worshipped that's what these first few quotes show us he's the begotten son who is to be worshipped verse 7 of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire they're, they're, ministering, they're, they're simply ministers but of the son he says now watch this verse 8 of the son he says your throne O." Jesus is never called God. That's not true. Right there, he did it. Right there, the Son is called God. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What's that mean? That's eternal. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God the Son has been anointed by God the Father. You see that language there? Where have you seen that in the ministry of Jesus? At His baptism. At His baptism. When Jesus is baptized, 
It's a picture of his anointing. The, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. He's anointed. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father anoints the Son. This is, Jesus is not just some, some rabbi strolling through the desert. Like, that's not who he is. He is the Son of God who is to be worshipped by angels. The one that the Father says, This is my Son. And he anoints him. Verse 10. And of the Son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. He's the Creator. We've already seen that. In the beginning, in the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. Your years have no end. Jesus is the Creator who never changes. This earth is going to pass away, but Jesus never will. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who's to be worshipped. Angels? They're not like that. And then he gives this final proof text, the seventh one in verse 13 here, from Psalm 110, which we're going to see a lot more tomorrow. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, the place of authority, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? God never said that to an angel. Well, then what's an angel? Okay, so Jesus is the Son who's to be worshipped. He's the begotten Son of the Father. Who are angels? You ever wondered what an angel's job description is? There you go, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? An angel is a what? A ministering spirit, that's what they are, who are sent out to do what? To help those who are inheriting salvation. Who's that? Believers, okay? That's, that's what their job description is. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we ever need to, you know, try and dial up an angel, talk to an angel, call upon an angel, thank the angels, any of that kind of stuff. That's not what this is pointing out. It's actually pointing out the exact opposite. Jesus is the focus of everything that the Father does. Angels are merely behind the scenes working in a way that pleases the Father that we don't need to worry about, okay? So any of you who are kind of into like, oh, I want to know more about angels, I want to talk to angels, I want to learn more about who my angel is and all that kind of stuff, I just encourage you to forget that. Okay, so that's the best way I can encourage you. Okay, you don't need to worry about that. There is zero exhortation from God for you to pay any attention to angels. Okay, now if an angel shows up and starts talking to you, then go see your pastor. Okay, and like that'll he'd love to hear about that. Okay, um, but that usually doesn't end well. Okay, um, so not the talking to your pastor that usually helps. Um, so his point here, he wants you to see that angels are simply servants angels are servants but jesus is the sovereign son jesus is the divine messiah angels are ministering messengers jesus is greater than the angels now one other thing i think is just important to point out to us here before we we press on and say okay why does he tell all this about angels you notice there in verse 14 Sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to, are to inherit salvation. Are to inherit salvation. In the book of Hebrews, salvation is talked about primarily in a future sense. Now when you read through the Bible, 
Um, there's three senses in which we're saved. Let me tell you what I mean. When someone trusts in Christ, repents of their sin, believes in Jesus alone for salvation, they are saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's something that happened in the past. We have been saved. We are being saved right now. 1 Peter 1.5 We are being preserved right now. So if you're a Christian, you know what's been happening since the moment that you were justified? Jesus has been saving you. While we're sitting here right now, Jesus is in heaven interceding and preserving you. None are t- snatched out of my hand, he says. So Jesus right now is saving you. You're being saved right now. There's also a day in which it's, it's not done yet. We're not with him yet in full. Salvation is coming. There is a day when Jesus returns and we will be with him and brought into the new heaven and new earth, made to stand in the judgment because of his righteousness and not our own. That is coming. In, sal- in, in Hebrews, salvation is mi- mostly, I think entirely, we'll see if I'm wrong on that, but I think entirely talked about in the future sense. It's something where the pastor is saying, congregation, don't go back, but press, press on. Cling to Jesus. Make it home. Cross the, cross the Jordan River, as it were, and go into Canaan. Make it home. Make it home. Make it home. That's what he's doing. So he's holding out salvation before you, saying, press into this. Okay? That's just, just to help you think about the way he's talking about this here. Now, we're going to make it through chapter 2, and then I'm going to take some questions. All right? So why... All of this about angels. Now, some people think it's because the people in the church were worshiping angels. And the author is intending to, to come through and say, don't, don't worship angels. He's, he's coming to correct that. I actually don't think that's why. They're, they may have been, I mean, every church has, you know, weird stuff going on. So that may have been going on in pockets that was not uncommon in the first century. There's something else happening here, though. Something, I think, even, even bigger than that. And we'll talk about what that is here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where we come to our first warning. You remember I told you there's five warnings that he gives in the book of Hebrews? This is the first of five. And his warning is going to be this. Do not drift from the word that you heard about Jesus. Do not drift from the word that you heard about Jesus. Since Jesus is the final, ultimate revelation of God... We are to verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Pay much closer attention. The word means to be on the alert, to be on watch, to be on guard. Have that posture in your heart toward what we've heard, which is the gospel message about Jesus, lest we drift. The word for drift here, it's used of a boat that drifts away from its moorings. Slowly, surely, little here, subtle, undetected, gradual movement away. You ever felt your heart do that from the Lord? To where you're like, I don't know how I got here. 
I mean, just a few months ago, I, I was just, the Lord and I were, seemed so close. But now, I feel like I've drifted. Because you know the Lord didn't move. And you just feel that, that distance. Cold to His Word. Prayerless. Sin seems easier. Love seems harder. Conviction seems more foreign. He says, Wake up! Wake up! That's a dangerous place to be. Do not drift from the word that you heard, but rather pay much closer attention. This book is intended to wake up sleepy believers. It's one of the things it's intended to do. Verse 2. For since, and here's the reason why he does this whole thing about angels. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just, just retribution, pause, there is a message that was declared by angels that God, every time somebody disobeyed it, God judged them. He's talking here about the law. So in Deuteronomy 33.2, Acts 7.53, and Galatians 3.19, Deuteronomy 33.2, Acts 7.53, and Galatians 3.19, we learn that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God spoke to Moses through angels. He delivered the law of Moses, the law to Moses, through angels. God spoke to him through angels. Those are what those verses talk about. And that's what I think Hebrews is talking about here. God gave the law to Moses through angels. Moses gave it to the people. And when the people disobeyed the law, God judged them. He says, now if God is going to judge people so severely for disobeying a message given through angels, how much more if they neglect the message that comes through the Son. You see what he's doing there? For since the message, verse 2, declared by angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? God judged people when they broke His law. Now, I just want to give a, a real brief word on this. When God gives His law, you've got to understand the law is not just a rule book that God has in His library in heaven and pulls it out and be like, this is a good one to rule by, and we're going to give this to the people. That's not how it works. The law of God is an extension of His character. God is holy, so He gives His law to show His people what it means to be holy. So, for instance, I have four children. They love to lie. Um, it, they came that way I didn't have to teach them they were broken from the beginning everybody's like that um, so when I let, we take, take my, one of my daughters she, wants, she lies about something what I don't want to tell her is don't lie because that's bad that is true don't lie it is bad the Christian wants to go deeper than that I want to help her to understand you don't lie because God created you to be an image bearer of God so when people look at you, they should learn what God is like. When you lie, you 
Don't just lie about a situation. You lie about what God is like. Because God never lies. He always keeps His word. He's always true. He's always faithful. So the reason we don't lie is because we're supposed to be showing people what God looks like in the way that we act and love other people. That's why God was so severe when people broke the law. is because they're defaming His name. They're, they're, they're slandering His character through sin. That's, that's what we do when we sin. Sin is a personal offense against God. It's not just breaking a rule. That's why it's so severe. How much more if the Son of God, God Himself, comes in the flesh and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and then we say, I ah, forget it. How much more severe would the judgment be? And that's what I think He's trying to, to point out here. There is such a great salvation. Jesus provides the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pictures and He saves us fully and finally. This is the true message. And notice there in verse 3 again, it, the message about salvation, was declared at first by who? The Lord. Jesus gave this message and it was a test and He did the work and it was attested to us this congregation, by those who heard. Who are those who heard it at first? The apostles, okay? While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Jesus came and gave this message of salvation. He died for it, rose from the dead. The gospel's gone out. The disciples, the apostles, they go and they're declaring it. They're working miracles, proving that this message is true. This message is true. He says, if God does all of that, and we say, you know what? I just really like being drunk all the time. I just don't care. Or you know what? I just want to leave my marriage, and I just want to go off and have an affair. Or you know what? I just, I just hate this religious stuff, so I'm just going to skip church. I'm just going to bolt out, and I'm just going to forget it. Or you know what? Actually, I think Jesus got what he deserved, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to worship um, Allah and think that Muhammad is his prophet. That apostasy, rejecting of Jesus, in a, in a, if that is your stance against God, he says, you have nothing to do but fear the wrath of God. Because Jesus is, he is where salvation is. And there's nowhere else to go. Because he's greater than the prophets and he's greater than the angels. Do not neglect such a great salvation. That's what he's laying before. Okay? So, if God was faithful to judge those who turned from his written word, given through angels, how much more will he judge those who turned from the living word, his son? Do not drift from Christ, because he is God's final message. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this after the first warning. One of the, one of the, the struggles that believers have when, they, when we study the book of Hebrews is that it makes you feel really uncomfortable. How many of you, when you heard all that, it made you a little uncomfortable? Anybody? Okay, if not, pay attention to the rest of them. It's intended to make you uncomfortable, okay? That's what the warnings are meant to do. It's, if, if you are drifting, it's intended to wake you up and make you say, I need Jesus. I, I, need, I, need, I need to be closer to Him. I need to trust Him. I need to get rid of sin. Anything that hinders me or slows me down, I need to cast that aside and, and consider Christ and draw near in faith. That's what it's intended to do to believers. 
It's to wake them up. That's how warnings work. These are a means of God's mercy to alert you to draw near to Jesus. So, when you feel uncomfortable reading through the book of Hebrews, that's exactly what you're supposed to feel. And all the theological questions that come up, those are great. And you should wrestle with those and wrestle with them in humility and hopefulness in light of the gospel. But it's intended to make you say, Jesus, what do I do? That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you draw near to him in faith rather than be like, man, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. Okay? That's, the, that's the intent of, of, of the book. Now, we're going we're gonna to truck on through, make it through the end of chapter 2, and then we will, uh, I'll take some questions. All right? What he's going to do now in verses 5 through 18, he's going to talk more about this salvation. If you neglect such a great salvation, now what he's going to do, he's going to say, okay, let's talk about that salvation. We're going to show that Jesus is the founder of salvation. Verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So he's talking about salvation coming, the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. What he's saying, and this is testified all through the New Testament, is that the new heavens and new earth are not for the angels. They'll be there, but guess what? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that we will judge angels. That's interesting. Angels will be below us in the new heaven and new earth. Whatever that'll be like. Amazing, I guess. <laughs> you know, we just trust that'll be, that'll be awesome. But like he's saying, the, the new heaven and new earth is not about angels. It's for the sons of God. That's accomplished through the Son of God. Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, which I always feel really encouraged when I read that. I'm like, he quotes scripture like I do. Doesn't the Bible say somewhere? You know, <laughs> praise God for this guy. Okay, verse 6. It was testified somewhere, which we know to be Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, Adam, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. Meaning, David here in Psalm 8 is marveling at, at, he's looking at the stars and he marvels at humans. That God would make us a little while lower than the angels. And that we would be crowned in glory and honor. That we would be made in his image. And that God puts everything under Adam's feet. He's the, he was to be the steward of the earth. That's what God, that's how, the way he made it in Genesis. And then he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subject to him. Meaning, something's not right in this world. Things aren't for us like they were for Adam originally. Something went wrong. Everything's not in subjection to us. Rather than us, man, so man was created to be the king over the earth for God. He's God's steward, the king of the earth. But rather than ruling over the earth, we're now buried six feet under the earth. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Well, Jesus comes and fixes it. He does what Adam didn't do, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Adam sins. He now, everything's not subjected to him, but rather he is now buried in the earth. He dies. The day you eat of this, you shall surely die. Adam dies. Everybody who's born after that dies. 
We are under the curse of sin. God in His mercy is going to provide salvation. Alright, what He does? He comes into the earth. He, God, the Son of God, becomes lower than the angels. He becomes a man. Goes to the cross, dies. Now He is raised from the dead, crowned with glory and honor. He does... He does what he gets what we deserved in death. And now he is raised with with honor. He tasted death for everyone. And then he says here in verse 10, for it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom are all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, this is a very important verse. God the Father makes Jesus perfect through suffering. What question do you have? (laughs) Was Jesus not always perfect? Is that what you're saying? Right? Okay, good. So, you're intended to be like, hmm. What he doesn't mean is that Jesus was not perfect, and then he became perfect. That's not what it means. It's the idea of ripening, or proving to be perfect. Jesus came into the earth, he came to the earth, and now through through his life and his death, he was made perfect in the sense that he, he was qualified, he was shown to be perfect. He proved his perfection through his through his life, through his incarnation, through his humiliation, through his crucifixion, through his resurrection, he endured it all perfectly. Proving that he is who he claims to be. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that he became perfect in the sense that he wasn't before, but it means that he was proved perfect through his enduring obedience to the Father all the way through. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane where he would say, not my will, but thy will will be done. He's proving that he's perfect. Just in the same way that in the temptation earlier at the beginning of his ministry, when the devil tempted him with the same three things that he tempted Adam and Eve with, but he resisted them all and proved that he was perfect. Through all of that, he was made perfect through his, his sufferings. Okay? You know what's interesting about that? Chapter 12, we'll see tomorrow. Guess who else is made perfect through sufferings? We are. In a different way. We are now conformed to the image of Christ through sufferings, through persecutions and trials and pain and God's gracious discipline in our lives. That's how he makes us like Jesus. So I know suffering is miserable in the moment, but if you know that God is making you more like Jesus, it's worth it. And you can trust. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, that's believers, all have one source, meaning they all come, they're all human. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and now he quotes Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. (laughs) Jesus says, I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers. Who's his brothers? Who's Jesus' brothers? Believers. He brings us into the family. He makes us family. We're adopted into 
the, the family of God. Now, it's interesting. Did you hear what, uh, where I said, did anybody know where that quote comes from? I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing you your praise. Anybody have a little note? Psalm 22. Does anybody know how Psalm 22 begins? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted it on the cross. It's understood that whenever a rabbi would quote the beginning of a text, it was intended to bring the entire text to mind for the hearers. So when Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is about a righteous man who is forsaken, not because of anything that he did, but he's betrayed by his enemies. But he knows, Psalm 22, that he is going to be delivered, and because of that, the brothers are going to be singing the praise of God. That's what Jesus quotes on the cross. He knows why he's forsaken, and he knows what's going to happen after it. God's going to deliver him. And he's going to deliver him so that the reason he was forsaken was so that those who should be forsaken, us, because of our sin, would not be forsaken because of his grace. That's good news. That's why we call it the gospel. Jesus saves unworthy sinners. And that's one of the things he had on, on his mind as he went to the cross. The glory of the Father and the good of his people who he was saving to make his own. He is the founder of our salvation. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The Father gives the Son the children. He purchases them with his blood, calls them to himself. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He, meaning they're humans, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. Jesus became flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Satan, what what this doesn't mean when it says um, the devil has the power of death, what it doesn't mean is that the devil is the sovereign one who kills people. God alone is sovereign. God alone is the one who gives life and who takes it away. It also doesn't mean that the devil is in charge of hell. So any of those, those little like far side cartoons, I don't know if you know what that means, but the, these cartoons where you've got the devil who's got his pitchfork in hell and he's you know, poking poor sinners for all of eternity, like that is not what hell's about at all. Matthew chapter 25 tells us that actually hell was created for the devil and his angels. Satan does not rule hell. He is cast there in judgment. And all those who follow him and his lies, they will go there as well. So that's not what he means by he has the power of death. What it means is that Satan uses the idea of death to enslave people in fear. They're always worried about it. And what's going to happen? And what happens afterwards? Well, Jesus comes to deliver people from that slavery, that fear of death, by conquering death on behalf of the children of God and raising from the dead so that now you, you may fear how you die, but you don't fear death if you're a Christian. Why? Because? Because Jesus is your Savior. And you know that on the other side, what you will hear is well done, good and faithful servant. Because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, meaning angels can't be saved. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Those are all those who have the faith of Abraham. Romans chapter 4, Galatians 3. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. 
So Jesus is the son, we are his brothers, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation, that's a real big uh, theological word. It is a wonderful word. Okay? Does anybody know what the word propitiation means? It means to satisfy. It means to satisfy, in this context, wrath. God, because God is good, He is angry against sin. Rightly so. He's angry against sin. So in the end, what we need to be saved from isn't just from death, isn't just from sin, isn't just from hell. We need to be saved from God. Because God is going to judge sinners. Jesus comes, dies on the cross, receives the wrath that we deserved. God's wrath is satisfied. It's propitiated. His wrath is, Jesus is the wrath quencher. That's what he does. That's what it, he takes it on our behalf. He became like us in every respect so that he could become a high priest in the service of God to make an offering that would satisfy the wrath of God. And he himself is that offering. Jesus is the priest and the sacrifice. He takes the judgment that we deserve for the sins of the people. So brothers and sisters, I want you to know the good news of the gospel is that no matter where you've been and what you've done, if you trust in Christ, God's anger against you is satisfied. That's why Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And one of the things Satan wants to do is he wants you to think that you're still under condemnation. He wants you to remember things that you did years and years and years ago and just make it haunt you and enslave you to this constant worry about whether God is angry with you or not. What you've got to know is that if you have confessed your sin and you have repented of your sin and you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, those sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west and there is no longer condemnation that you walk under. You walk in freedom. Now, there may be consequences in this life. That is certainly true. But that is not God's wrath against you. In Christ, you're adopted as his son and his daughter, beloved forevermore. Some of us, the hardest thing to believe is that God loves us. Think about that. Does God love you? Now, we know the right answer. If you've been under any kind of sound teaching, you know the answer is yes. But if to really... Abide in the peace that I'm loved by God the Father. That's a hard thing for me. My past is bad. And I get haunted sometimes from things that I've done. But coming back to the cross and remembering that Jesus was the wrath quencher. And that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got to rest under that gospel truth. There's freedom there. Verse 18, For because he himself has suffered... When tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, this is such a sweet verse for your discipleship. Your personal discipleship of you following Jesus and your discipling relationships with one another. To remember that when you feel tempted, huh, Jesus understands. He's sympathetic. He never gave in to temptation, but he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. And not just in every way, but to the full extent Think about temptation. Most of us, we resist temptation for a while. Jesus resisted his entire life 
He knows the full brunt of temptation. So there's a place to go and somebody who understands when you're struggling. Cry out to Him because there's nobody else who can sympathize in the way that the Lord Jesus does. So Jesus is greater than the prophets and He's greater than the angels, which is really important because if God judged people who disobeyed the law, how much more the one who fulfilled the law he is the founder of your salvation, the one who delivers from the slavery of death and who now stands as your high priest to intercede sympathetically on your behalf to help you to heaven. That's who Jesus is. All right, let's pause for a moment here and let's see what kind of questions do we have from these first, first two chapters here in the book of Hebrews. We've got some microphones that are going around. Is the pace okay? I mean... We got 13 chapters. We got to keep the hook in a little bit, you know. That means we're going to move fast. Um, anybody have any questions at all? We have a, a microphone here. Just tell us uh, if you tell us your name, um, and uh, if, if you're able to tell us um, either where you're from or what church you go to, and then your question, please. Hi, thank uh, thank you for the exposition. I'm Richard from UCCD. All right. Uh, my question is on the perf- on Christ being made perfect. Um, you said this um, makes known who Christ is. Um, it shows, it reveals, it declares. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always f- thought that that phrase is the conclusion of what he speaks about after that, which is really Christ's incarnation and suffering, as you explained. But also, in the unique sense that you now have Christ, who is a faithful high priest, Christ, who is God-man, and Christ was ascended to heaven as never before. He is like us, but in glory, in a unique sense of um, an expression of his deity and of his uh, salvific role. Would that Uh, be so? So, good question. If we can make questions shorter, I'm from, I grew up in the hills of West Virginia, so I need short questions. (laughs) I think, though, what you're, what you're saying, I, that is certainly true, that in his, through his incarnation and his suffering, um, in all things, he now ascends as the God-man who's been through everything perfectly, who is now able to perfectly and sympathetically intercede on our behalf. So, yes, I think that's, that's certainly true. Okay? That's good. Yes, sir? Name and where you're from or what church you go to? Um, Ethan Merck. Uh uh, an intern at Redeemer and from the U.S. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on uh, verse 14. It which, says, which chapter? Uh, chapter 2, where it says that uh, Christ partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. How did Jesus, through death, render Satan powerless? Yeah, he did, so basically, Jesus beat the devil with his own stick. So the devil's stick has been, has been death. And he uses that to enslave people in fear. Everybody's going to go to the grave because of sin. Well, the devil uses that to torture people, as it were, all, all the way through life. Jesus comes, and by dying, he defeats death. So he comes out of the grave. So when, so when it's as if Jesus is going to the cross, and, the, and Satan is rejoicing because he's going he's to kill Jesus, but little does he know that Jesus is going to use death to defeat Satan. So he beats the devil with his own stick, as it were. So he conquers what nobody else can conquer. Nobody else comes back from the grave. Dead people just don't get up. 
There's only one who does, and that's Jesus. He defeats it. The resurrection is the proof that he's the son of God, that even death and sin will not hold him. He's victorious over them. And now anybody who trusts in him, the same is true of them. What is true of Christ becomes true of us. us. So we know that we will not be in the grave forever. Jesus will bring us forth. So I hope that answers your question. It's It's a good question. We have time for maybe one more. We don't have to have another question. But if you have another one. Okay. Are you guys understanding the flow okay? Am I going too fast, too slow? Okay. It's the accent. You're fine? Okay, good. All right. Back we come. So we're going to go till 8.30 and then we're going to take a break. All right. And by the way, I'm not offended if you need to go to the restroom or go stretch or whatever you need to do. Okay. Um, or, or as we get through the night, if you get tired... Just feel to stand up, okay? That's better than like falling over and passing out, you know? So I probably wouldn't ridicule you if you did, though. All right, probably. All right, so now we're going to go on to chapter three. So he's laid out to show that he's the foundation, or he's the founder of our salvation, that he is going to be the high priest um, who intercedes on behalf of God. Which, by the way, that you see that thing about the high priest? We're going to talk a lot more about that a little bit later on particularly tomorrow, but I think, I think that's the main objection to the, the people who are calling, the Jews who are calling these Christians to go back to Judaism, I think that's their main issue with Jesus. They're, they're saying, you don't have a high priest, and if you don't have a high priest, you don't have a sacrifice, and if you don't have a sacrifice, you've got nothing to appease God's wrath and anger against you. And the reason you don't have a high priest is because high priests are from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, so he's not qualified to be a high priest. So what the author does is be like, God's, God's got that, all right? And let me show you how he's got that. And you can do that in chapter 7 to show that he's of a greater order, the Melchizedekian order, which we'll do that tomorrow. Um, but he introduces this issue of high priest early on because I think that's the main issue that they're going after. And he's, he's showing them um, the answer. Also, by the way, we just preached through Leviticus at our church, and now we're doing Hebrews. Um, and I read the Old Testament, study the Old Testament. It is amazing how rich Hebrews becomes. This is, Hebrews is an Old Testament Bible study. That's what it is. It's telling you how Jesus fulfills everything in Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's basically what it's doing. And then showing you how he's better um, than all the generations that came after. So t- study your Old Testament. Speaking of Old Testament, what about Moses? Moses was awesome. Is Jesus better than Moses? He was. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus is now going to be greater than Moses. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, and by the way, whenever you see brothers, the word's Adelphoi, it means brothers and sisters. Okay, So people in the U.S. are real excited about that but it's it's true okay therefore holy brothers and sisters you who share in a heavenly calling consider jesus consider jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who is faithful to him who appointed him just as moses also was faithful in all god's house The apostle here, verse 1, speaks of of Jesus as the apostle. An apostle is a sent one who speaks on behalf of God. 
He's personally commissioned by the Father. Jesus is, as it were, the original apostle. Okay, So he is the apostle. He's the one sent from the Father to speak on his behalf with the authority of the Father. He's also here the high priest. So he speaks on behalf of God, and now he mediates between God and man. This is what Jesus does. He's the the apostle and the high priest of our confession. You're going to see this this, uh, phrase, our confession, a lot. What confession is he talking about here? He's going to tell them to hold fast to their confession. This confession is important. Anybody want to take a guess? Yes. It's the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That confession, he says, whatever you do, you hold on to that. That confession is where life is. It's not just in saying the words, but it comes from a heart that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He says, that confession, hold on to that. When they put a knife to your throat and they say, you, you rebu- refuse Jesus, say that He's not the Son of God or you die, you hold fast your confession and you will see His face in just a little while. It's worth it. He says, whatever it costs, do not forsake Jesus. Consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, the Father, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. So what he's going to do now is he's going to compare and he's going to contrast the faithfulness of Moses with the faithfulness of Jesus. And he's going to show that the exaltation of Moses is great, but the exaltation of Jesus is greater. You're catching on. Amen. Very good. So, verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, Paul's here and he's going to tell you more about this. That, by the way, is it's a huge statement to these people who come from a Jewish background. The law, Mo, Moses was the man. Like when you read Exodus... And Numbers and Deuteronomy, I mean, like, you, you read later on in Jude, like, they had to hide the body of Moses because Satan wanted it for some, whatever kind of weird reason he was going to do something. But, like, Moses was the man. All right? Jesus is the man. <laughs> the man Christ Jesus. Right? He is, he is greater. So much so that, do you remember the transfiguration? Jesus is there. He's got Peter, James, and John. The Father's there. And who else, is, who else shows up? Elijah and Moses, the law and the Jesus is greater than both. Because in the, in, the, in the transfiguration, those two fade away and Jesus is glorified. The law and the prophets are done. The Father says, listen to him. Moses spoke about him, Jesus said. Abraham, look to my day. It's, the whole Old Testament's about somebody's coming. Jesus is the one who comes. He is greater. He has, he's worthy of more glory than Moses. And then he gives you an illustration. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Right? For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
What he's saying is this, is when you go and you look at one of these amazing buildings out here in Dubai, you know, I mean like one of these bazillion story skyscrapers, and you look at that and you're like, that's pretty amazing. He's saying, that is amazing, but what's more amazing is the architect who figured out how to build that thing so it doesn't fall over when the wind blows. Like, that's amazing. He uses that kind of illustration to say that's how much better Jesus is than Moses, in a sense. Moses was over the house. Well, <laughs> Jesus is over that, is, is, is what he's saying here. Verse 5, For Moses was faithful in all God's house. God's house meaning Israel, the nation of Israel. He was faithful there, caring for them, ministering for them, um, doing all the things that he did in the book of Exodus and all the way through Deuteronomy. As a servant, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of the things were spoken of later. Um, Deuteronomy 18 says a prophet's going to be raised up like Moses. The people need to listen to, that's Jesus. So Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses is part of the house. He's in the house. He's of the people of God. He's a servant among them. Jesus is the son over them, is the picture that he gives here. Moses is great. Jesus is greater. Moses is glorious, but Jesus is truly glorious. You see the picture? He's showing that Jesus is greater than Moses. By implication then, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to the journey that they were on. Because the Son has come. The Son has come. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Again, the house is the peop- are the people of God. Warning number two. And we are His house if. We are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That confession. You want to know if you're of God's house? We'll see. We are of his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. He lays before him here this necessity for perseverance in faith. This warning that he's about to lay out here is to encourage endurance and to avoid apostasy. Their confidence in their boast, it's Christ. Keep on boasting in Him as Lord, Savior, Son. Okay? Salvation is conditional upon persevering in faith. Salvation is conditional upon persevering in faith. In the same way as salvation, remember, were saved, are being saved, will be saved. You were saved, that was conditional upon what? Your faith. By grace, through faith in Christ. In the same way, right now, your salvation, now, is dependent upon what? Christ that we, by grace, through faith, trust in. He who has the Son, present tense, has life. Do you have the Son? 
That was weak. Have you read? Have you, I'll start over. I will start over. Let's try this again. Do you have the Son? Yes. Then you have life. If that's true, then you have life. Keep on that confession. Keep on that confession. And if you keep on that confession, then it proves we are of His house. Now the Lord knows those who are His. That's certainly true from eternity past. He knows. Our responsibility is to cling to Christ by faith. That's what He calls us to do. It's it's the mark of a Christian. Christians make it home. Now it doesn't mean you don't fail. It doesn't mean you don't stumble. It doesn't mean there aren't... All those we'll talk about that. But He wants to make really clear here that perseverance in faith proves that we're of God's house. That's how you know. So... There is not confidence for somebody who, back in 1985, showed up at a church and raised their hand and joined a church and got baptized and then just went back to life as was and don't follow Jesus. Like, that kind of act... You can't give assurance simply because that's, that happened. You act, assurance comes from where are you now? That's where assurance comes from. Are you abiding in Him? Abide in me and I in you, John 15. That's, that's the picture here. Okay? This is where confidence comes from. And what we're going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you that this is just in the Bible, okay? So we're going to go over to the book of Colossians. Hang a left. Actually, let's, let's just start. We'll do it in chronological order. Go to Matthew. Let's hear Jesus say it. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to do these verses, and then we'll take a, we'll take a, a break. And you can, um, yeah, you can consider some of these things for just a moment. Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. Now, let's do 12 and 13. Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Jesus. Okay? The one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, this is not saying there aren't days that you give in to sin. And there aren't days that you've you feel really dry, and there aren't times that you doubt. And it's not saying that. He's talking about big picture. Do you make it home? Do you repent? Do you come back? He who endures to the end will be saved. John chapter 3. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. John chapter 3, verse 36. John three thirty-six. Whoever, I'm going to let you get there, I hear you turning. John 3.36 Whoever believes, believes, present tense. Whoever believes in the Son has, has eternal life. It's present tense. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you have the Son? Yes. You have life. Okay? So, Good. Praise God. Um, keep on going. John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, present, present tense, him who sent me has eternal life 
He is not coming to judgment, but is passed from death into life. Do you see present tense? When you start seeing this, you see it everywhere. This is, this is how he speaks to us. Um, Colossians chapter 1. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay? Colossians chapter 1. So that was Jesus. Now Paul. Colossians 1, 22. He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. See the same kind of idea? If you persevere. Last one we'll do is... uh, Oh, there's so many. Let's just do this one. I'll come back to it a lot. First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, verse 12. First John 5, 12 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, present tense. And this is what the author of Hebrews is highlighting for us. He wants you to cling to Jesus because in Him is life. And we are called to to persevere in in faith, clinging to Him. We are of His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And now what He's going to do is he's going to move in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through 4, verse 16, basically, all the way up to to verse 13, but on into 16. Um, He's going to give us an example to avoid. He's going to say there's an entire generation of people who did not do what I'm calling you to do. And I'm going to give you an example to avoid we're going to consider the Exodus generation. Those grumblers. Remember them? He said, make sure that that heart is not in you. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back and pick it up here in chapter 3, verse 7, and work through uh, this second warning. Okay? Ten minute break. So I'm going to start talking when the, it's on an 8 at 22. Okay? Um, let's take a break. <laughs>